verse 7. Why should I pardon you, the Lord says? Your sons have forsaken me and sworn by those who are not gods. When I had fed them to the full, they committed adultery and trooped to the harlot's house, that is, the pagan temples. (laughs) This verse is hilarious. They were well-fed, lusty horses, each one neighing after his neighbor's wife. Shall I not punish these people, declares the Lord? And on a nation such as this, shall I not avenge myself? Go up through her vine rows and destroy, but do not execute a complete destruction. Strip away her branches, for they are not the Lord's. In other words, Judah's branching out in all directions except the direction of the Lord. For the house of Israel and the house of Judah have dealt very treacherously with me, declares the Lord. They have lied about the Lord and said, Not He. Misfortune will not come on us. And we will not see sword or famine. The prophets are as wind. And the word is not in them. Thus it will be done to them. Amazing. In spite of God's overflowing abundance and grace, feeding them to the full, they still gallop along like dumb horses off to the empty world to find feeding. To find the fulfillment of their desires. The Hebrew writer said this in another way. Hebrew chapter 6, verse 4, For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and they put Him to open shame. How can a person feed on the true and pure and living Word of God? How can a person experience the filling of His Holy Spirit and taste all of the goodness, even of the age to come, and then turn back and go elsewhere? How is that even possible? But that's exactly what Judah did. I'll tell you one difference between you and me and Judah. And it's a difference that I am thankful for every day of my life. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit. If not for His Spirit dwelling within, we would be in the exact same place as Judah. But we have His Spirit. Thank God. What's amazing is God speaks here. I realize this exposes the depth of the depravity of their sin. I mean, it is bad. And it is that same depravity that Jesus paid for on the cross. It's that same ugliness, that same rebellion. God says, shall I not punish, declares the Lord. He has to punish that kind of rebellion because He's so perfect. And so He did punish their rebellion. He poured it all out on His own Son, Jesus at Calvary. And Jesus took the whips, and Jesus took the lashings, and Jesus took the nails, and He took the cross on His back, the cross that belongs to every human being that ever walked the planet in our rebellion. Jesus took it all. Don't ever forget this. That's why Jesus came. I was asked this question on Sunday about the coming of Christ and the implications and all that. I said, wait wait a minute, wait a minute. There's only one reason Jesus came. And that's to die. Now He taught. He brought the Word. He healed. He did a marvelous thing. He fulfilled prophecy. 
But the singular reason God punched through time and walked the face of the earth the first time was to die. Without Him we would have no hope. By the way, did you catch the grace of God in these verses as we were reading through? If you're not sure what I'm talking about, I'll come back to it in just a minute. Read on, verse 14. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, because you have spoken this word, that is, back in verse 12, misfortune will not come on us. We won't see sword or famine. God's not going to do that to us. Because you have spoken this word, behold, I am making my words in your mouth fire, and this people would, and it will consume them. Behold, I am bringing a nation against you from afar, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. It is an enduring nation. It is an ancient nation. Gang, go all the way back to Genesis chapter 10 and 11, and you can see the foundation, the roots of this enduring ancient nation of Babylon. Babel, the city founded by a man named Nimrod. Nimrod, who Genesis 10 tells us was a mighty hunter against the Lord. This is apparently the first man to stand up in absolute rebellion. Nimrod, credited with bringing pagan idolatry into the world in the first place. The first idolater, kind of the high priest of idolatry, if you will. Nimrod, and then building Babel, the Tower of Babel, growing up that great ziggurat in Babel, has been there a long time. It is an ancient nation. Some have called it, and I would agree, the capital of Satan on the earth. Babylon is to Satan what Jerusalem is to the Lord God. And so this is an ancient, enduring nation. God chooses this nation now to come against His own people. A nation, He says, whose language you do not know. In other words, it will sound like babbling. (laughs) Nor can you understand what they say. Their quiver is like an open grave. All of them are mighty men. Their quiver holding the arrows, arrows of death that will kill and destroy. Verse 17, note the contrast. Back in verse 7, he said, I fed them to the full. Now listen. They will devour your harvest and your food. They will devour your sons and your daughters. They will devour your flocks and your herds. They will devour your vines and your fig trees. Devour, 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 devour. Do you get the point? They're going to eat you alive. They will demolish with the sword your fortified cities in which you trust Yet even in those days, declares the Lord, I will not make you a complete destruction. And there's the grace. It's the third time he said that. He said it in verse 18 right here. He said it back in verse 10. He said it in chapter 4, verse 27. Wipe them all out, but not a complete destruction. Take them down, not a complete destruction. Even in those days, I will not make you a complete destruction. More on that in a minute. Verse 19. It shall come about that when they say, Why has the Lord our God done all these things to us? Then you shall say to them, As you have forsaken Me and served foreign gods in your land, so you will serve strangers in a land that is not yours. The punishment fits the crime. I said before, you know, you want pagan idols? I'll send you to the capital of idolatry, Babylon itself. You want to chase after idol worship? I'm going to set you in the midst of the thickest idolatry in all the world. And what we see here is there is a direct link between the sin and the sentence. The sentence bears out the sin itself. The sin that finds us out breeds the sentence, if you will. There's a direct link here. 
Galatians 6, verse 7 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. The one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Verse 20, Declare this in the house of Judah and proclaim it in, or the house of Jacob and proclaim it in Judah saying, Now hear this, O foolish and senseless people. The word senseless there, some of your margins have this. It means heartless. Senseless. People without a heart. People without a spirit. People with no spiritual understanding. Who have eyes but do not see. Who have ears but do not hear. Verse 21. Verse 22. Do you not fear me? Declares the Lord. Do you not tremble in my presence? I've placed the sand as a boundary for the sea, an eternal decree, so that it cannot cross over it. Though the waves toss, yet they cannot prevail. Though they roar, yet they cannot cross over it. What about a tsunami? Well, okay. (laughs) What he's saying is, the waves since the flood have never crossed over the boundaries of land completely. That's why God set it up that way. He's the one who dug out the basins for the sea. I mean... Think about that. Digging an ocean. Okay, Rod dug his pond and that just about did him in. God dug out an ocean. God's saying, don't you even realize who you're dealing with here? Don't you even fear me, declares the Lord. Now I said on Sunday, frivolous faith lacks the fear of the Lord. Quoting from Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 19, the dread of me is not in you. And I got handed a note. I get notes sometimes. And the note was simply a verse. And the verse is 1 John 4, 16-18. Let me read it to you. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God. And God abides in Him. By this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as He is, so also are we in the world. There is no fear in love. I say it that way because I think that's how it was intended for me to hear it. There's no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. Pastor Rick was wrong. We shouldn't have fear. I mean, I actually called for a moment, second hour on Sunday. I said, let's sit there for just a minute in the dread of the Lord. And I got a couple looks. I came here for grace. You want me to sit in the dread? The fear of God? You want us to fear God? What are you talking about? Should those who love God still fear Him? Listen. For the one who truly loves God, God who loved us first, Here's the deal. Fear, before I enter that love relationship, which is abject terror, fear melts into a great reverence. Fear becomes a holy awe, a secure confidence. When I say dread, I don't mean cower, I mean bow. When I say fear the Lord, don't run away, run to Him. And that's the difference, depending on where you stand. You're either terrified of the Lord because you have no relationship, or you fear the Lord with a great reverence. I have a great re- I don't always act right. I don't always live right. 
I fall to sin like anybody else, but I will tell you this, I have such, such a fear of my Father. And it is a good fear. It is a safe fear. You know, my dad, when I was growing up, I knew he could take me out. But I loved him. And I was confident in him to protect me as a little kid. In the same way, I I fear my father. I have a dread of the Lord that leads me to vow and makes me go to sleep at night absolutely secure in His presence and in His power and in His ability to bring about everything He said He would do. But I do not presume upon the Lord to call Him my bud. You know, God's the man. That's just foolishness. He's my father. I think years ago, I may have told you all this, but when I was a kid, someone started making fun of my last name. I won't tell you how they did, because I don't want to hear it again. (laughs) Kids can be vicious. And you know what I realized in that moment? I could care less what they said about me, but the second they started making fun of my last name, it really upset me, because that was my dad's name. That was my father's name. Don't make fun of that name. That name belongs to my dad. I even said that. And the kid was like, you're weird. (laughs) A holy fear is deepened and filled out beautifully in the love relationship that we have with God. Verse 23. But this people has a stubborn and rebellious heart. They have turned aside and departed. They do not say in their heart, let us now fear the Lord our God, who gives rain in its season. Both the autumn rain, that is the early rain, and the spring rain, that is the latter rain, who keeps for us the appointed weeks of the harvest. Note this quickly here, the appointed weeks. Those are the seven weeks between Passover and the Feast of Weeks in Hebrew Shavuot. Between Passover and Shavuot, seven weeks go by. So 49 days, 50 days literally. Jesus resurrected and for 40 days walked among the people, made Himself visible to as many, Paul says, as 500 people at one time. And then He ascended 10 days later at Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks, Shavuot, the Holy Spirit, like the latter rains, poured out on the people. Poured out on the apostles. Peter said, this is a fulfillment of prophecy you're seeing right here, that your young men will prophesy and your old men will dream dreams. And it's happening before your very eyes as the church comes into being here. The Lord gives both the early rains and the latter rains. He keeps the appointed weeks of the harvest all the way up to the pouring out of His Spirit at Pentecost. Verse 25, your iniquities have turned these away. Your sins have withheld good from you. For wicked men are are found among my people. They watch like fowlers lying in wait. Fowlers are bird catchers. They set a trap. They catch men. Like a cage full of birds. So their houses are full of deceit. Therefore they become great and rich and they're fat and they're sleek. And they also excel in deeds of wickedness. They do not plead the cause. The cause of the orphan that they may prosper. And they do not defend the rights of the poor. Boy, may that never be said of this fellowship. May we always be a church that defends the orphan and we plead the the rights of the poor. We defend the poor. We look out for our own who are struggling. We look out for those who are in need. Shall I not punish these people, declares the Lord, on a nation such as this? Shall I not avenge myself? And appalling... The word appalling used by God is appalling. (laughs) 
an appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely. The priests, note this, rule on their own authority. And my people love it so. Wow. That reminds me of what Paul wrote, 2 Timothy 4, 3. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. And listen to how God finishes out this second part of the message. But what will you do at the end of it? Oh, you may love the teaching. You may love the tickling. What are you going to do when it's all said and done? When it all comes down, what good is that teaching for you at all? Notification of invasion. The condemnation of corruption and part three, and we're going to move very quickly, so hang on with me. The devastation of Jerusalem. Chapter six has been called the chapter of alarms, and rightly so. Verse one, flee for safety, O sons of Benjamin. In the midst of Jerusalem, blow a trumpet in Tekoa. Raise a signal over Beth HaKarim. The evil looks down from the north and a great destruction. The comely and dainty one, the daughter of Zion, I will cut off. Shepherds and their flocks will come to her. They will pitch their tents around her. They will pasture each in his place. And those shepherds and those flocks and those tents are the tents of Babylon and the nations for war. And they will pick apart, literally eat up the land. The prophetic alarm is real for this prophet gang. What he's hearing, what he's seeing is terrifying for him. And he writes, though this is still probably 20 years before the invasion, he writes as if it's happening in this moment. He writes as if he's watching it take place in front of him, just as it would actually take place. He addresses at the beginning of chapter 6 the sons of Benjamin. Why? Why Benjamin and not Judah? Jerusalem was technically in Benjamin territory. And the devastation being talked about here is now specific. It's not just the land of Judah. It's Jerusalem itself. It is the apple of God's eye that is about to be torn. And Jerusalem was in Benjamin. The two tribes, Benjamin to the north and Judah right south of it, are separated by a valley on the south side of Jerusalem called the Hinnom Valley. The Valley of Gehenna. And that valley between the two. So the alarm goes out to Benjamin first because they're the first tribe of the two in this kingdom that will be hit. Nebuchadnezzar's coming from the north. He and his army's coming down. They will hit Benjamin first. And so the alarm goes out. Flee south. Run south. The enemy's coming from the north. Don't stop in Jerusalem, by the way. Keep on running. And you might know, Jeremiah hears one thing and sees another. He hears an alarm and then he sees an alarm. It says, blow a trumpet in Tekoa, or some translations, sound a trumpet in Tekoa. That's a word play. The word sound or blow is tiku. So tiku in Tekoa. Sound the alarm, tiku in Tekoa. And so there's a sounding of a trumpet that Jeremiah hears. That's the first alarm. The second alarm he sees with his eyes. It's a signal fire at Beth. Hacharim, the signal fire. That word signal indicates the signal fire, the warning fire. How many of you have seen Lord of the Rings? And you know at the very end, in the, in the return of the king, that battle is about to take place, and it's very moving. They finally get a fire lit 
in the city that is under siege. What is the name of that city? It doesn't matter. But, but uh, No, it's not Mordor. It's Gondor. Gondor, the city, the, the white city that's going to be raised up against Mordor, and they light a fire there, and then next you see the fire lit further, and on and across the mountains, and, that, and they did it that way. And in fact, there was a mountain there, uh, Bet Hakarim, house of the vineyard, is what Bet Hakarim means, and it's probably Ramat Rachel today. And some of you have stood there right at Ramat Rachel, there's a, there's a kibbutz there, in the south of Jerusalem. You can stand. It's up on a high hill. You can look out from Ramat Rachel and you can see Bethlehem and the shepherd's fields and look on south beyond that as well. A signal fire would have been lit there in the south of Benjamin as a warning to Judah as the invasion is coming. So, Jeremiah hears the alarm. Here's the trumpet sound. He sees the signal fire lit. He writes down these things as though it's happening before his very eyes, before his ears. And suddenly, in verse 4, we find ourselves encamped with the enemy. Prepare war against her. Arise, let us attack at noon. Oh, woe to us, the day declines. For the shadows of the evening lengthen. Arise, let us attack by night and destroy her palaces. What verses 4 and 5 declare is the final strategy session of the Babylonian coalition. They are so eager to fight. They want to strike at noon, rest time for the soldiers. But they want to fight. Let's fight now. And, but by the time they get gathered and they get ready to go, ah, the day's lengthening. Well, let's fight tonight. Let's not even wait for tomorrow. We're going to invade. We're going to do it now. And the Lord now makes five statements. Note these. Each one of these statements is headed by, Thus says the Lord. He'll say that five times in this chapter, and we'll finish the chapter with these. Number one is the siege. Verse 6, the siege. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Cut down her trees, cast up a siege against Jerusalem. This is the city to be punished, in whose midst there is only oppression. As a well keeps its waters fresh, so she keeps fresh her wickedness. Violence and destruction are heard in her. Sickness and wounds are ever before me. Be warned, O Jerusalem, or I shall be alienated from you and make you a desolation, a land not inhabited. O Jerusalem is under siege. O Jerusalem, under siege. The city has been destroyed and rebuilt some 35 times in its history. The layers of history in the dirt are thick beneath Jerusalem. And gang, it would happen again. Following yet another warning of the Lord, here He cries out, O Jerusalem, the siege is against you. Matthew 23, 37, Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. Oh, Jerusalem, it'll happen again. It'll happen yet again. Zechariah 12, verse 2. Behold, I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all the peoples around. When the siege is against Jerusalem, it will also be against Judah. It will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will be severely injured and all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. Not talking about Babylon, but talking about a future attack that Jerusalem is yet to see. O Jerusalem, 
But let me just say this, the Lord still has great plans for His holy city. In one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, Revelation 21.10, He carried me away, John writes, in the Spirit to a great and a high mountain, and He showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. So the siege. Secondly, the fall. The fall. Verse 9, Thus says the Lord of hosts, They will thoroughly glean as the vine, the remnant of Israel. Pass your hand again like a grape gatherer over the branches. Jeremiah responds, verse 10, To whom shall I speak and give warning that they hear? Behold, their ears are closed. They cannot listen. Behold, the word of the Lord has become a reproach to them. They have no delight in it. But I am full of the wrath of the Lord, the prophet says. I am weary of holding it in. Listen to how God responds. I love this great verse. He says, Pour out on the children in the street and on the gathering of young men together. For both husband and wife shall be taken, the aged and the very old. Check that out. Tell the ones you might not think will listen. Who do I speak this to, Jeremiah says? They're not listening. They won't hear me. Then you tell the kids. You pour it out on the children. You tell the young people. You go to those who know they're not the great leaders, know they're not the ones sitting in the halls of Congress. You go to the youngsters. That's where you speak the truth. Moms and dads, teachers, grandmas and grandpas, tell the kids. Tell the children. If no one else will hear, they still have open hearts. Tell them. Both husband and wife shall be taken, the aged and the very old. Their houses will be turned over to others, he says. Their fields, their wives together. For I will stretch out my hand against the inhabitants of the land. Be sure about this. Babylon's attacking, but it is by the directing hand of the Lord. He says, verse 13, For from the least of them, even to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for gain. And from the prophet, even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the brokenness of my people superficially. Saying, peace, peace. But there is no peace. Were they ashamed because of the abomination they have done? They were not even ashamed at all. They did not even know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At that time, I punish punish them. They shall be cast down, says the Lord. Have we forgotten how to blush? Boy, that jumped out at me. Are we a culture that has forgotten how to blush? Paul says in Ephesians 5, verse 11, And Christians, man, this ought to spin us around. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them, for it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But we'll watch their movies. And we'll listen to their music. And we will read their books. And my question to you is, does it make you blush? Or are we just so used to it? Our world calls adultery love affairs. It's adultery. Our world calls pornography art. Call murder a choice. And it seems to me the blushing seems to have gone out of style. The cause, verse 16, the cause, number three. 
Thus says the Lord, stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. I love that verse. What's he talking about? The ancient paths, the ancient ways. He's talking about the Word. The Word which is unchanging. The Word which is perfect. The Word which is everlasting. It's guiding. It's instructive. It's directive. It is the unchanging Word of God. The ancient paths. John Corson says, if it's new, it's not true. And if it isn't new, well, I guess old things can be untrue too, so I'm not going to go there. But if it's new, it's not true. Stick to the ancient paths, he says. Stand by the ways. Or as Psalm 119.105 says, Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. Or as Peter wrote in 2 Peter 1.19, we have the prophetic word more sure to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But they said, we will not walk in it. And I set watchmen over you saying, listen to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, we will not listen. Therefore hear, O nations, and know, O congregation, what is among them. Hear, O earth, behold, I am bringing disaster on the people, the fruit of their plants, because they have not listened to my words. And as for my law, they have rejected it also. For what purpose does frankincense come to me from Sheba and the sweet cane from the distant land? Your burnt offerings, they're not acceptable. Your sacrifices are not pleasing to me. What's he saying? Religion is not my business. Religion is not my interest. It's your heart. You're doing all the religious things, but your hearts are not there. And you have rejected my word. That's the cause of the devastation. Here is, number four, the stumbling block. The stumbling block. Verse 21, Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am laying a stumbling block, or laying, plural, stumbling blocks before this people. And they will stumble against them. Fathers and sons together, neighbor and friend, will perish. These are not stumbling blocks of deception. God cannot lie, right? These are not stumbling blocks of temptation either. James 1.13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and He Himself does not tempt anyone. God does not lure you down that path. The stumbling blocks here are the Babylonians. They are the nations which will make the people literally stumble and physically fall. Now, finally the chapter and the message concludes with what we can call the evaluation. The evaluation. Verse 22. Thus says the Lord, Behold, a people is coming from the north land, and a great nation will be aroused from the remote parts of the earth. They seize bow and spear. They are cruel and have no mercy. Their voice roars like the sea. They ride on horses, arrayed as a man for the battle against you, O daughter of Zion. Jeremiah replies, We have heard the report of it. Our hands are limp. Anguish has seized us, pain as of a woman in childbirth. Do not go out into the field. Do not walk on the road. The enemy has a sword. Terror is on every side, he says. O daughter of my people, put on sackcloth, roll in ashes, mourn as for an only son, a lamentation most bitter. 
For suddenly the destroyer will come upon us. What does it mean to mourn as for an only son? Zechariah uh, 14 tells us Israel, when they see Jesus coming, will mourn as for an only son. But understand this. To mourn for an only son means that if you have an only son and Babylon attacks and that son is killed, there will be no one to continue the family line. To mourn for an only son is to mourn for a family that ends with the death of that son. And for the Jewish people, again, a Jewish mindset is required here, the death of an only son means the end of immortality. When a line is cut off, when a family line is finished, unless, of course, you happen to be the only son of God. Revelation 1.17, Jesus says, Do not be afraid, I'm the first and the last, and the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. The only Son who was killed but is alive, and He says, I have the keys of death and of Hades. But we call this the evaluation. Why? Because of what God says in verse 27, the Lord has a job for Jeremiah. A job that goes along with His prophesying. He says, I have made you an assayer and a tester among my people that you may know and assay their way. What does that mean? The word assayer there, King James Version says tower. It's not the best translation. Because the context in what we'll read is very clearly an assayer. The word is mibsar. Mibsar, assayer, it means inspector, tester, or evaluator. Jeremiah, you're my inspector. Jeremiah, you are my assayer. What does an assayer do? Read on, verse 28. All of them are stubbornly rebellious, going about as a talebearer. They are bronze and iron. They are all of them corrupt. The bellows blow fiercely. The lead is consumed by the fire. In vain the refining goes on, but the wicked are not separated. They call them rejected silver because the Lord has rejected them. Do you get what an assayer is? An assayer is someone who inspects precious metal. I want you to inspect, to evaluate my people Judah. They're going to go through the fire. But as they go through the fire, what you're going to find is there's you can't pull out the impurities because they are wholly impure. They have rejected me, therefore I have rejected them. It says, Isaiah said in Isaiah 1.22, Your silver has become dross. Waste. The leftover that's no good. That's what your entire metal is worth. And so it ends this message. Invasion corruption, and finally the devastation of Jerusalem. The message began, if you recall, back in chapter 3, verse 6, it began with the nation rejecting God. Now it ends with God rejecting the nation. Their sin has truly come full circle. And this is a heavy word. It is a solemn message. I sat there literally for about 10 minutes praying after I was finished studying. And I said, God, do I have to end there tonight? It's depressing. That is a heavy word. And in part, we need to leave it there because a heavy word, it's a solemn message, and it is not to be treated lightly. But let me just say this one thing to you. 
We know this. Three times the Lord declared, I will not execute a complete destruction. Three reasons why. Number one, because He said He would not do it. Because He promised there would be a remnant. He never breaks a promise. I will not bring about a complete destruction. Psalm 33, verse 9, He spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. Jesus said in Matthew 24.35, Heaven and earth will pass away, but My words will not pass away. I will keep for Myself a remnant of Israel. God promised He would. Therefore, there could not be a complete destruction. There had to be those who survived. Secondly, because He has plans for Israel. He said He wouldn't destroy them because He has plans for them. He has a future and a hope. Jeremiah 29.11, one of the key verses of the whole book. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. God could not execute a complete destruction on Judah because Jesus had to come. And if He had completely destroyed Judah, there would be no line for Christ to come. And if Jesus didn't come, there would be no salvation, no blessing for the nations of the earth. And Revelation 5.5 says, Stop weeping. Behold, the Lion, the Lion, not from Babylon, the Lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome. And so in spite of the massive judgment that would fall on Judah, God kept for Himself a remnant because He promised His people He would, because He promised them a kingdom, but lastly and most importantly, because He promised His Christ would come. And Jesus did. Amen? Amen. And there's the grace. Let's pray. Father, praise You. We love You. Thank You for Your Word. And may we, Father, allow these things to sit even heavily on our hearts tonight. May we truly consider our place in this culture, in this world, that we might have the boldness of a Jeremiah to speak the truth in love, to call the alarm, and to care about this world, even as Your servant Jeremiah cared for his people. Father, we bless the name of Jesus, and we thank You for preserving a remnant and bringing Jesus for our salvation. And it's in His name we pray tonight. Amen.